In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. It's fantastic. I've been waiting months, so looking forward to the second one and getting back to normality, getting back to the way life once was. So what does it mean for you now for getting the vaccine today? It's fantastic. It's freedom, and i would be able to visit my granddaughter, which was the biggest and hardest obstacle, really. Big, big day. Big, huge day. Absolutely fantastic celebrations all around, yeah. The world has been looking forward to get to the stage where we can get vaccinated, and at this stage, it's, it's actually great to have gotten the first dose anyway, at least, you know. Hopefully better days ahead. Coming up to now the last few days, like this again. Also good in all Ireland. <laughs> we're thrilled I was excited I wasn't nervous really at all I was more excited than anything what are you looking forward to doing most now once you're hugging hugging and kissing my loved ones my grandchildren so yeah it's a big day for us Josh Crosby reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you now have you ever wondered what you could buy with some clever trade-ups well take a listen to this Okay, so you started off with a hairpin. How do you transform that to a house? Yeah, so really, uh, there are a couple rules to this. I saw a video on YouTube from 15 years ago where a guy did just this, and I thought, I'll be the second. So this hairpin, there are only a few rules. One is I can't spend any money when I'm trying to get all the way to a house. And the second one is I can't trade anyone I know. So can't go to my parents, can't go to my friends. And I am making individual trades up until I get to a house. Okay, so when did this start? So it's almost been a year, which is pretty crazy. So next week will be the one-year anniversary of posting my very first video. Okay, and you started off with just a standard hairpin, is that right? Yeah, so honestly, I looked around my house and thought, what is the smallest thing that I own, the cheapest thing? And I saw that one hairpin, and they come in packages of 100, and they just sit around your bathroom. So I thought, okay. One of those is the smallest, and then the biggest, obviously, the house at the end. Okay, so you start off with this hairpin. What was the very first trade you did, and how do you make these trades? How do you approach people? How do you advertise a hairpin? Yeah, so honestly, at the beginning, I didn't tell anybody that it was a journey, that I was trying to get all the way to a house, because it just seems so crazy. And I think anybody I told, even my family at the beginning, was sort of rolling their eyes. So In the beginning, I really did just reach out on Facebook, Craigslist, a bunch of sort of advertising websites where I could list something for sale, quote unquote. And um, I would look through ads and try to find somebody who might have something for sale. And instead of offering money, I could offer a product. So uh, for the very first trade, I posted in a bunch of Facebook groups and pretty much just said, I am willing to trade anything you have for this hairpin, anything in the world. And That first trade, I think a lot of people, again, were very skeptical. And one woman replied and said, I live across the country. If you're willing to mail me the hairpin, I'll send you a pair of earrings that I don't like. She had gotten them for her birthday, never worn them. And that was the very first trade. That was the beginning. Wow. So you end up with these earrings, obviously a a little more lucrative than a a single hairpin that comes in these packs of hundreds. What next? What was the next point? Yeah. So then I met, uh, I found a woman who had a set of four margarita glasses and she had no use for them anymore, was cleaning out her kitchen. And instead I said, instead of paying you, I think it was 15 US dollars. Could I instead give you this brand new pair of earrings? And 
She said, okay, sure. That sounded great. And we made the trade and I got four margarita glasses. Wow. Okay. So you, you went from a hairpin to earrings to margarita glasses. And most recently, I saw the most recent trade because I'm following this on TikTok, actually. And you had three tractors. I mean, how did yes. you end up with three tractors? <laughs> so every single trade, I'm I'm surprised myself because I just never know what you're going to end up with or what type of people will be interested in your next trade or what they will offer. And I had in the previous trade before the tractors, I had a Honda CRV. It's a pretty good car. And a family reached out. They have two kids. They were interested. And they are mechanics on a farm and just pretty much uh, buy old tractors and fix them up. And that's part of their company. So they have so many tractors and thought, okay, we can afford to get rid of three and we need this car for our family. Uh, so we made the trade and I had never driven a tractor. I didn't know how to start them, which was uh, <laughs> an experience. I was like, oh, great. I have these. Now, how do I get them to my house? How do I store these? So every trade's an adventure. What an impressive lady. TikTok star Debbie Skipper from The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. 13-year-old Dervla McCrave has severe anorexia, has been refusing to eat for days at a time. Now, Dervla has been in a general hospital for more than nine weeks and her mother, Elizabeth McCrave, is pleading with the HSE to fund a bed in a specialised unit in England and she joins me now. Elizabeth, good morning. Good morning. Tell me about Dervla and how long she has been grappling with this terrible condition. Uh, Pat, this has gone on since February of uh, so almost 15 months, and it's just deteriorated and deteriorated. She was at home. I couldn't keep her safe at home. She couldn't keep herself safe at home. She refused to eat. Then she refused to drink. She'd go four and five days without food. Then she'd eat something small, and then it'd be another days again before she'd eat. She's been in and out of hospital. On numerous occasions, and three were where she was, I nearly lost her, and she remains now in the hospital nine weeks because we can't keep her safe at home anymore. Now, the the, the hospital don't have a specialised bed, so she's in a general hospital. Um, she's just in a general what, hospital, Pat, yeah. yeah. Is there any specialist in the hospital that, that deals with this kind no. of case? No, they no. don't. They don't specialise in mental health. It's just a general medical hospital. And But the care, love and attention that they've given Derville for the last nine weeks, I could never repay them because they've kept my child alive. They have kept her alive because I couldn't do that as a mother. And it's very hard to sit at home and watch your 13-year-old child starve herself and know that you cannot help her in any way because this disease has overtaken her mind. And she has siblings and they've had to sit and watch this and... It's very hard playing the role of two people because that's exactly what I feel as if I'm playing. I go to the hospital every day and I see my child and I have to leave her there in that bed and cry the whole way to Dundalk and then come in the door and act as if everything's normal when a family member of our family is missing and they know that. Um, Has she ever had specialised care? She is attending, yes, uh, specialised care. She gets one session once a week with a psychologist. That's not enough for a, a mental health patient. You know, in, in this day and age, this child is struggling with her own mind. She's taking a paracetamol overdose. She's fighting every day demons in her head. And she, when she done the paracetamol overdose, she told her 18-year-old brother that she just wanted to go to sleep 
and stop fighting every day. Now, this she, she talks to you about... And sees fat every day. She doesn't see anything else. She doesn't see the beauty within her. This is a child that has eight distinctions in musical theatre, has so much to give to the world and just doesn't see any light. And in addition to actually um, seeing what is not there, she sees uh, fat where it is clearly not there, what other mental torments does she describe to you? She's very, very deep child, Pat, and with a child that's suffering from any mental health illness, they will portray a very uh, masked face, that, that they, everything is fine on the outside, but it's only what her thoughts and in her diaries of what she's writing and what she really feels. So she can't really portray herself. She thinks that she's fine, but she knows she's not fine. She's self-harmed. She's, she's just at the end of her road. And I'm at the end of a road as a mother sitting watching this go by every single day, week by week, to watch your child. I'm sorry, Pat, it is very, very hard to watch. I know that you cannot do anything, that the services are not out there for our children. This is our next generation of a world. And if there's no help, what hope have they got? The availability of specialist eating disorder beds, I mean, there are some around the country um, maybe not They're close to you, cute. but uh, yeah, have they have they tried to source a bed for her where they there are? Tried. Yeah, yeah, they have tried, but there is no beds available. They've tried Cork, they've tried Galway, they've tried Dublin. At this stage, I don't mind where my daughter gets her specialised care, as long as I'm going to have my daughter, because I know my daughter will not make it if she comes home from the hospital. She she can't do it. We've tried on three occasions. The last time I was literally over my child ready to give chest compressions because she had refused to eat and even drink water for three days. And there was nothing I could say as a parent or anybody could talk to the child to get her to do it until she collapsed in front of me and the ambulance personnel took over. I nearly lost my child. Mother Elizabeth McGrave from The Pat Kenny Show. I mentioned you're from Ireland, but you're you're in Jerusalem at the minute. Is that right, Mona? Well, I'm Palestinian, um, but I've been living in Ireland for the past year and a half. Um, I came here about a month ago to be with my family. Um, so I've been here for about a month and, and staying for a little while longer. Like day to day, I mean, you know, I'm even as I'm I'm talking to you now, I'm just looking, Mona, at the um the, the news coverage on you know the international news channels, um, and you get a sense, I suppose, from the footage of of what's happening. But for somebody that's there as an eyewitness, like, can you just describe some of the scenes for us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, Jerusalem, um, as as the rest of Palestine, you know, you're living a situation of settler colonialism where basically you have an apartheid Israeli regime where, you know, you're treated as a second or third or fourth class citizen. Um, So there's daily violations of your rights, basic rights, like rights to freedom of movement, rights to housing, rights to um, access um, holy places to pray. Um, And that happens on a on a daily, daily basis. And obviously, you know, you've you get these um, intensity intensity in in, uh, 
um, in what is going on on the ground. Um, for example, what happened in the old city where Israeli soldiers were throwing uh, tear gas bombs inside of Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is uh, one of the holiest places for Palestinian Muslims to pray. Um, you know, injuring women and men and children, and also, you know, targeting um, the medical centers around the mosque that are available there because there's always a lot of people going to pray at that time. Um, you know, so you, you have a lot of uh, things ongoing all at once. You have uh, many neighborhoods in, in East Jerusalem where families are at risk of being displaced. Um, and, and forcibly so, and illegally so, um, and you have Israel in at the, the same time annexing more and more and more land without anybody saying anything or holding them accountable by any means. Um, and so then you have the situation in Gaza, which is a, a different reality, which is right now the most serious and worrying and heartbreaking reality. Um, you know, where, where essentially civilians are being massacred um, and there's absolutely no, um, no intention on the Israeli side at the moment to have a ceasefire in order to, to stop what's going on, in order to give, um, you know, Palestinians in, in Gaza the ability and the chance to come out for air and breathe a little bit. Um, and 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 get some food, get some um, main supplies to survive. It's it's absolutely horrific. The, it was described at the UN Security Council, Mona, recently as utterly appalling, and and the international calls for de-escalation have obviously gone unheeded. But as somebody that's just there on the ground, and I'm not involved, obviously, in the in 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 the political um the political scenario and all of this, but do you think is the international community done enough? Yeah, I mean that's a great question and a very very important question. You know, this is a human rights issue, and um, you know, in any case around the world, when there are human rights great grave human rights violations and grave international law violations that are happening. You need the world to respond and they are not responding. And it's so dehumanizing that they are not responding. It's it's just incredible. Um, Like take, for example, when Russia annexed Ukraine um, a few years ago, you had within days sanctions on Russia. This is, you know, uh, regular responses within the UN Charter. If you read the UN Charter, on human rights, you know, the, the correct response to human rights and, and uh, international law violations happening on the ground are sanctions. And this is what needs to be happening. Israel needs to be held accountable. Everybody on the ground is waiting for the international community to hold Israel accountable. And it's not happening. And it's really frustrating because you see so many people on the ground who are actually speaking out. You know, you see the shift in 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 the tide you know people are starting to understand that this is a colonialist um you know regime this is an apartheid people are beginning to speak out but we need governments to act some shocking vistas there from mona sabella from lunchtime live 
So, Kira, you've had a fair amount of experience of uh, Twitter pylons over the years, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I, I think it is fair to say. Going back years now, I have had it. Uh, I think my first pylon was back about seven years ago. I, I criticised somebody for drinking excess alcohol on Optrans and there was a pylon that went on for three days then. But it has occurred for me on a fairly regular basis uh, and I rarely speak about this but because I have a job as a columnist and a broadcaster where I don't just report Jane as you know we give opinion here on this show um, I've had it over and over again and it seems to me that the way the online mob works is because I do think that it likes to and it wants to bully it wants to intimidate and, and uh, sometimes those that are, are within that mob are, are actually I suspect scared of it coming for them so they so they, they join in but the mob like to go for what they see as acceptable targets and those targets are often women in the public eye or certain politicians and and they're all seen as fair game but once you are an acceptable target people like myself the the mob has a need to attack so you're an acceptable target they'll go for you Um, and I think that that sort of feeds their need to attack but also I think people are kind of glad that it isn't coming for them so so you're safe if you're within that mob so I'll be very honest I've had I've had death threats I've had deliberate lies and smears told about me that were absolutely untrue I've had fairly vicious insults I've been defamed over and over again I have trended on Twitter ahead of the late late on a Friday night because drunk Twitter is bearing what I would describe as it's generally fairly cowardly teeth. My kids have seen it. My kids have seen lies. They've seen threats. The rest of my family and friends have seen it too. And the kind of joke is that the people who are screaming at you online and, you know, expressing their outrage, they actually believe themselves to have some kind of, generally speaking, I think, some kind of high moral ground. So you're out there just doing your job in the media. Your job is to comment on things. And they are there screaming about, you know, how despicable you are for literally doing your job and, and and insulting you and and I think that they think that they're I think they believe what they're saying to be honest and I think they come with their digital pitchforks and you and I have spoken about that before I suspect they don't even recognise in themselves that they are a mob and that they're feeding off each other but that kind of group hate that desire to ostracise that desire to punish to cast out to cancel it reminds me of nothing as much as sort of pulpit bashing in the past mm. and, and I, I think it is hate truthfully but it is hate that sees itself as virtuous and I think it is a sanctimonious cruelty and I think every generation has the type of person that leans into that and you know we had the craw thumpers in the church in the past when I was young and now that I am no longer young we have the craw thumpers who are the woke Uh, I left Twitter after seven years because I realised that to me now I look at it as a shouting hate fest that does nothing good to or for anyone on there and I'm not going to tell you I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of saying how low you can feel when you face into that wall of hate. I, I, I don't want to. But what I would say is, is that lies and hate and viciousness, they have a, a way, in my view, over time of consuming those who peddle them. And I think that's what we're going to see on social media. That's going to eat itself. And I think there is decency and there is cruelty, to be honest, in, in human nature. But I think social media has largely been colonised by, by the cruel. And I, I think there's a lot of bystanders there too. And I think they're watching what are happening and some are excited by it and some are just glad it isn't coming for them. But for me, something needs to be done because it is bringing out the worst in human nature. It does. It absolutely does uh, bring out the worst in human nature. Look, I, I have a policy. I just don't engage uh, with Twitter for the very reasons that you outlined I, I despise what it does to people and I, I've seen I've seen the impact it has had on you and the abuse you've taken 
I also really worry about what it does to A, politics and B, journalism. I just think with the lack of depth, the the soundbite tendency, the half-baked notions that people engage in, I think is really bad for politics. I think it drags it down. I also think it's really worrying for journalism. I think it has way too much impact on what goes into our newspapers, what goes into our radio programmes. I also think it has way too much impact on how journalists and broadcasters, how they come to their views and the positions they take. I think it is self-censoring for that reason. So I have real, real concerns about it. Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. I learned that uh, those small social interactions I had at the end of a uh, working week, uh, just going to the bar for a drink with a friend, really helped me switch off from work, which I think is very important. You're a businessman, you own businesses here in Cork, they're shops, what are they called? Uh, my business is Ristorante Rossini on Princess Street. In McCartan Street we have the Cock Arms, and you're talking about an, epi- an epiphany there, well I decided to cycle about two months ago, so I took up cycling and I'm after losing about a stone and a half, so that was my epiphany. Well, congratulations, and we can hear an aeroplane overhead, so perhaps we're almost getting back to normal. Yeah, hopefully, yeah, I'd say that by the 7th of June, um, Rossini's will be open outdoor and I'd say hopefully in another say the third week of July that uh, we'd be open to um, to have drink indoors. So you took up cycling what else did you learn about yourself? Well I've learned about myself is that uh, it's, it's it's better to do something um, positive rather than to be told that you have to do it so I just went out myself and uh, I learned that I can do it and uh, long may I continue. I have the Cork Arms in McCurtain Street and we've been closed for over a year. And do you miss serving the pints and the food? I do miss that, but I also like to... I'm getting to bed earlier at night and up earlier in the morning and I'm doing a lot of walking, which I didn't do before, so my... So your quality of life has improved, but there's no money in the bank account? That's right. (laughs) So, But I miss my customers and I miss the bar I was brought up to it, so we'll be back in the middle of mid-July, hopefully. I'm kind of an extrovert, so I like talking to so people. you needed to be near people. You needed to be near your friends. Yeah. And Zoom calls wasn't enough. Phone calls weren't enough. No, it definitely wasn't enough. wasn't the same. I think I discovered that, like, I love my own company. You yeah. like yourself? Yeah. I'm, I'm great to you, right? Someone <laughs> likes themselves. So you like to be on your own. You like to be, I suppose, a loner That's in a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can hear me, yeah. <laughs> so you enjoyed that? You enjoyed lockdown and places? Yeah, I did. Like, obviously, I'm buzzing out get like, back like places to be open again but like I'm yeah I enjoyed it yeah I got divorced so that's what you discovered <laughs> and what did you find out about yourself it was like a barns there yeah. I learned to spend a lot of time with my family uh, how to save money and, yeah, uh, save money. yeah, yeah, big time, big time. Yeah, not to spend it uh, with a lot of places closed, but yeah, uh, a lot of time spent with my family. Have you saved much? Enough. I've learned that I actually really enjoy singing. I'm into One Direction. I like a bit of Justin Bieber as well sometimes, but he's for the shower. Only Justin Bieber in the shower. So which Bieber song in the shower? Uh, oh, definitely Baby. The one thing I would say is that I was very lucky to have a good, a good family that I had strong connections with and that also that I had kind of good friends. They're the, two that I, they're the two that I appreciated more than anything because I'm on my own and I would have found it very difficult living on my own if I hadn't that, if you know what I mean. I couldn't understand why we could not go to Mass. The churches are so big. So you wanted a real epiphany, you wanted to go back to Christ. Exactly. I think he was, take, he was taken from us and if it wasn't for being able to get Mass on the television and online, it would have been terrible. So Mass is finally back, 50 Thank are allowed God. in. 
I read it mass twice a week and I missed it dreadfully. Henry McKean reporting for Moncrief. We hear a lot about the culture of censorship in the early and mid part of the 20th century and indeed we've discussed that on this lot plenty of times when it comes to different seminal works of one form or another uh, but censorship seemed to be something which never really applied to the whole realm of theatre. Absolutely and censorship brings to mind certain names people we've looked at on the slot like like Edna O'Brien for example mm. but the, the theatre in Ireland curiously kind of escaped a lot of the censorship of, of the 20th century that seemed to dog pretty much everything else. And I think it's just that they didn't really think about it and the need to, <laughs> the need to censor. <laughs> it's the one that got away, you know. So film censorship, like we're very, very early on film censorship, even before we get down to the written word. Uh, James Montgomery, the, the man who, when he got the job, was the first film censor in the, in the 1920s, almost boastful, actually, about his lack of knowledge about the cinema. Uh, when he was asked what he knew about the cinema, he replied, I know nothing about the cinema, but I know the Ten Commandments, which in <laughs> 1920s okay. Ireland was enough for the job. Mm. Uh, more famously than cinema, the written word was absolutely savaged. I mean, there was the, the ludicrously named Committee on Evil Literature. I mean, they do sound like the bad guys, don't yeah. they? And out of that came the, the censorship of publications for The funny and, thing is that Committee on Evil Literature sounds more <laughs> like a body which was set up to propagate evil literature, doesn't it? Like, it sounds like a supervillain in a volcanic lair going, we are going to disseminate evil literature. And, and no one got away uh, from the catcher and the ride to the country girls. You know, no one got away from, from the censorship of the printed word in Ireland. But no one really thought about theatre as a kind of entertainment which needed that kind of strict control. Mm. And... One reason I find that very odd is that while the state didn't really think about theatre as something that needed to be censored, Irish people themselves had for a long, long time. There's a long history of Irish people getting upset about plays, disrupting them. The Playboy of the Western World, you know, the masterpiece of, of Sing, uh, when that's put on in the Abbey in 1907, they actually have to bring in the, the, the big boys, you know, the broad and tall men of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, have to stand in the aisle so that play can actually go ahead. And the Freeman's Journal called it a very gross and wanton insult to the Irish people. More yeah. famously, we all remember from the Leaving Cert, the, the, the Plough and the Stars, yeah. Sean O'Casey, uh, in 26. That's just chaos in the Abbey. There's a prostitute on stage, she's in a pub, there's a tricolour above her. And there's massive disturbances in the Abbey. <laughs> what was so offensive? Was it the fact that it was a prostitute or the fact that she was like soiling the, the soil of a pub? Some people insisted who were there that it was the, the presence of the tricolour in the drunken public house. Other people said it was the prostitute. Okay. But whatever it was, there was enough in the Plough and the did, Stars. They'd have a problem going to a franchise Irish pub these days, wouldn't they? <laughs> Absolutely. They kicked off again in the Abbey in, in, in 26. So you have this history, this quite long history mm. uh, of you know, theatre brawls and censorship by the people uh, within the realm of the theatre. But the state never really thought about it. And theatre remains comparatively free yeah. uh, of censorship in 20th century Ireland. The Pike Theatre that you mentioned, seating a grand total of 55 patrons, um, pretty much nearly impossible to find, probably befitting the fact that it was so small, but it was literally shed. <laughs> Yeah, in, it was in Dublin Four. It was up a laneway, up Herbert Lane in Dublin Four, uh, and it wasn't so much a theatre as a, as a repurposed shed. And you can walk down Herbert Lane today uh, if you can find it, with no clue that this theatre was ever there. But to be honest, when it was there, it was just the same. You could walk down the lane and have <laughs> no clue it was there. And you know, to get a sense just how tiny it was, there's a great review of what it was like attending a play in the Pike. The reviewer said, we were jammed together, tight as bricks in a wall, sweating, sticking our elbows into our neighbours, digging our knees into the people in the row in front. You know what? You'd almost be nostalgic mm. uh, for that kind of packed <laughs> I'm, house. I'm thinking of a pub theatre that I was in only a couple of years ago, which probably had about similar capacity. It's got a very similar drive, but like, you'd kill to be there now in a, in a day like today. But it's just an extraordinary, you know, captures the mood of what it was like to be in this tiny little shed. Uh, but, you know, the theatre, though, was very, very small. It had an enormous vision. And when they opened in 53, they said, our policy is to present plays of all countries on all subjects written from whatever viewpoint, 
provided they seem to us to be of interest and to be dramatically satisfying. Yeah. So uh, going back to that point I made earlier about yeah. you know, comparing it to, say, the IFI, that's what it was all about. It was about bringing this kind of talent from the fringes, from the margins, uh, into the centre of, of Irish public life. And they made the point that we are going to put on things that you won't see on the larger or smaller commercial stages. I'd love to know what they meant by smaller commercial stages. How much smaller do you get for bar, 55 people? Bar someone was doing plays in the back of a truck, I don't think it's possible to have a smaller stage <laughs> than, than the pike. But larger obviously meant the Abbey uh, and the like. Terrific stuff there from historian and author Donald Fallon from Hidden Histories on On the Record with Gavin Royley. And of course, you can tune into Gavin every Sunday morning from 11 till 1. Now the sea, speaking of the sea, because the man who created the sea has just got out of the water. Uh, I only did like 30 seconds, but Peter, you went for a good swim. Yeah, I went for the uh, cold therapy, the deep cold therapy, Bobby, yeah. Yeah, well done. Um, How do you feel now? Ah, great. You're really grounded. It's just like, I just feel like I'm in the body and feel great. Good man. Now, tell us about the app. Uh, how did it come about, first of all, and what's the thinking behind it? I guess it started from just a passion for swimming in the sea for me, and uh, I bought the sea.ie four or five years ago, and, and, and I couldn't believe I got the sea.ie, the domain. That I, could, I was like, Ireland and Ireland. Great. Such a great ring to it, yeah. the sea.ie. How did nobody buy that? But anyway, I got it, and... Uh, I guess it started, the thought was it would be a, a website that give, gave you all the swim spots and the tide times and and then that grew out in my head to be something that really there needs to be something that maps the coast a bit more and all the culture and the environment the environment and, and, and the, the heritage spots and okay. and all of that. So it goes kind of into all those possible all those areas and 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 is mapping the coast basically of, of with all the swim spots and all the surf spots and you know but it's it's also a wiki app so users can put in the swim spot their okay. swim spot so there's loads of swims i mean we've got 150 i think on the app but there's thousands of swim spots in ireland you know i, I know a few good wild swimming spots over the years and the fact is what people do generally like about them is that they're actually quiet and they maybe don't want to tell everybody about them but maybe that's not a problem <laughs> well you know i that's fine i mean yeah. some it's, it's 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 definitely true of surf spots more than more than any other spots the surfers are very fishermen are even more secretive <laughs> so you know but sure isn't that the way we want to we want to keep things secret because they're they're special but yeah. i think everybody's just into the sea now there and, and and it's 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 a useful resource for people to have you know if you're a sea swimmer and you're going to the west of ireland and you're from from the east coast it's great to have a have a have a uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start shivering now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great to have a, 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 a space that you can look up the, these spots. You want to find the nicest spots in the area yeah. you're going to c- carry for your holidays. Or It's all the things a, a sea swimmer kind of needs to know in one place. Yeah. There's also kind of an advocacy piece, you know, where you're, I know you're into sea conservation. And, you know, there's a message there that we have to protect the sea and... You know, for those of us who enjoy it, you know, we have to contribute maybe to that, yeah. to that cause. So, how 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 does that yeah. element of it work? Well, first off, it's it's about we've got a lot of information in there around the current well-being of the sea. There's the first podcast is with um, Eastie Britton, who's an Irish was an Irish champion surfer for five years. She's named after a surf breakup in Sligo, Eastie, yeah. and um, uh, she's she's a marine scientist and. 
she'd talk a lot about in that first podcast about the well-being of the sea and, and then we have other podcasts with Anya Murray who's a who's an eco-eye presenter and Run, uh, has a podcast or a radio show called Nature File. She talks a lot about the the well being of the sea, and it's really in terrible trouble. I mean, I think a lot of people understand that these days, but it's 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 kind of you know, every second breath we take comes from the ocean, yeah. and where the large mammals are in desperate trouble yeah. because of overfishing. And so you know, we've got to find out these things. if we're gonna if we're gonna want to use it and enjoy it for. The future generations, it's 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 got to be really really better managed. And marine protected areas is a big part of the, yeah. the, the, what we need to really amp up. We do indeed, Peter O'Brien there from the Sea.ie, and of course you can hear the full interview on Newstalk.com. The brilliant Frank Sinatra, as heard on The Tom Dunn Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. 
By the way, a word in defence of football. So, I mean, every league campaign, if you're not, you know, sitting there at Congress and scribbling down every rule change and every motion, stuff passes you by. So there's often, like, a rule change that catches you when the league actually starts. So with football, I hadn't realised that this business of, you know, if there's a foul inside the 20-metre line, it's an automatic penalty until the weekend. It just had passed me by. It's only when you see the games actually happening, you realise. And Dublin, two of their three goals were penalties. And so I, this just didn't make any sense to me. So this was brought in in hurling because there was no black card in hurling. And there was a raft of these drag downs right through the championship last year. So something had to be done. But like this was not an issue in football. The black card in football was largely doing its job. And it's almost as if they said, OK, look, it works in one sport. Sure. Well, if we're bringing in hurling, let's throw it into football as well. And there was no need. Uh, I just, I just, I don't know why this has suddenly uh, emerged on a football field, and already weekend one, there were so many inconsistencies here. This is going to be really problematic in football. Was it a goal scoring opportunity or not? Is is a trickier thing in football, I think, than in hurling to a judge. Uh, I don't know why they've brought this in, and they've left the offensive mark. Mm. I'm with you, Joe. I was watching the Dublin Mars Common game yesterday and was very confused as to what was happening. Uh, maybe there's been such a concentration on the hurling rule changes. Mm. And fouling is part of the game. It's part of sport. It, there's allowed to be contact, there's allowed to be a foul, and it doesn't necessarily mean there needs to be this ultimate penalty mm. at the end of it. That if you foul someone out in the wing, if you foul someone more than tw- 20 yards out, a free is fine. Not everything needs this massive punishment to make it this free-flowing, enthralling game. Actually, a game with a bit of age, with a bit of niggle, can be a brilliant thing. Yeah. So I don't understand the constant want to punish tackling. And yes, bad tackling, nobody wants to see it. Yeah, yeah, but hey, defenders are there to defend. Some of the best battles you see are Keith Higgins against James O'Donoghue. There's going to be a little nudge here or there. There's going to be a little clip of the ankles at times yeah. if somebody's skipping by. It's a free. Move on. Yeah, it doesn't have to be, oh, it was a yard inside the 20 metre. It was an honest effort, but I went down so I get a penalty. Like, it's, it's, I, I, but there was no issue with this in football. There weren't the drag downs. The black card was in place. There was no black card in hurling. So I don't know why they've brought it in football. What, I hadn't realised they had. The, what was the really, what was the really high profile issue? Was it in the final year or two ago involving Mayo? Where somebody was bearing yeah, down. Mayor Robert, you're dead right. Yeah, there you go. Uh, no, there, there was somebody bearing down on goal. Somebody's going to text in and correct me on this one, or yeah. he'll pick it up. Whereby somebody was bearing down on goal. I don't know if it was Kenny O'Connor, and they were dragged down, but essentially it was free. Whereby in this instance, I think it would have been a penalty. So it was those kind of cynical. Uh, and was there a, yeah, the black, was there a black yeah, the card, rules. Rich? Was there a black card? Can you remember? I oh god I think there might have been yeah see if, I think in that point I, in, in yeah. that instance if yeah, there's a black card yeah. then you know you, you you take your punishment so I don't know I just think they've created such a problem for themselves in football and I don't know who was making the point again somebody will text in and say but some and I totally agreed with it that the offensive mark just should have been binned everyone hates the offensive mark like catching the ball chest height when it's been kicked you know not very far is not a great skill shouldn't be rewarded with a, a pop at goal we didn't really see a team exploited to the full extent last year. Is it last year it was in for the league and not the championship? Mm. Yeah. So now it's so here. We had a strange scenario, obviously, where the league and championship were yeah. a massive gap between them. So if, like, if, the mar- if the offensive mark is hanging around, a team is really going to try and exploit it now to the full extent. And there's going to be a game where it you know, makes a mockery of the whole thing and it's going to blow up. I don't know. A Congress every yeah. year. It's, 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 it's looking it's, looking for problems. It's like 
say watching Manchester City and their tactical fouling and deciding we want to get rid of that. <laughs> Anytime Fernandinho fouls 30, within 35 yards of his own goal, we're going to give a penalty. Mm. And that'll soon cut it out. Like, oh, that's a totally inadequate punishment. Two years ago, apparently, that the uh, mark was brought in mm. for the league. Mm. I need to double check the mark. I, I, it, so if you're a, if you're a, a team in Division Three or Division Four and you're looking for a potential age, yeah. So last year the championship had the mark, but uh, Jerry Goodwin was just telling me nobody's had a, a time to exploit it, and probably a similar situation here should have had what three weeks back. Yeah, but that's the things. But I, I think there's going to be a game now where it'll, it'll make a mockery of the whole thing. Like if I'm if I'm not mistaken. This is how Luders it was, and again, I'm talking off memory here, which is always a dangerous thing to do, but I think Dublin, effectively, in the league campaign, when it first came in, said, well, we're not actually going to use the mark, because it's not going to be around for the championship, so mm. why would we get used to it? But if it's hanging around, teams will, and then there'll be a hullabaloo, and then it'll be binned again, and that's our process. So that, that, that's the next 18 months mapped out of GA chats, I think. <laughs> but this is a this is a two week conversation, isn't it? The start of the league every year rules conversation. When really we should be just talking about David Clifford and his genius. Well, true. If the mark hangs around, though, if the mark hangs around, I, I, sorry, I, I heard someone saying it is hanging around for the championship. I should have double checked that. I'm just meant to double check that before I came on. Someone outside will double check that for me that it's hanging around for the championship. But I'm pretty sure it is. Joe Malloy, Nathan Murphy, and Richie McCormack from off the ball. On Sunday, Gavin McLaughlin explores the world of Amazon for taking stock. Here's journalist and author Brad Stone. Bezos, has, he's been criticised for not being as much of a philanthropist as maybe he should be for a guy with, with a fortune of this size. For example, a lot of the, the world's wealthiest people are signed up to something called the Giving Pledge, which is a commitment to give the majority of their wealth away. He's not signed up to that, Brad. No, no, and and a very um in a very Bezos like way, he kind of just dec- always declines to go along uh, with the crowd. He wants to do his own thing, and we saw that with uh, Amazon's kind of climate commitments. Um, instead of just releasing a, a carbon impact report, he had to come up with something called the Climate Pledge and get other companies to sign his thing. Um, you know, he's a little headstrong in that way. Uh, but you're right in that with the. Philanthropy, he's got a $200 billion fortune. He's the wealthiest person in the world. And there have been calls on him to be more philanthropic. Um, he, he was slow to do it. I think he's been responding to the criticism. He announced a $10 billion Bezos Earth Fund to make climate donations. And I want to be optimistic about that. I think you know one of the smartest people in the world uh, trying to solve the problem of climate change is good news. But, um, you know, it's very it's very early and, you know, he still kind of has to prove out that his intentions are real and that he'll follow through on it. Another thing he gets criticised for is is the company's treatment of workers. And there was an incident recently where I kind of wondered, is this guy a bit divorced from reality? If you just look at his last letter to shareholders, he's defending the company and he says, and I quote, employees are able to take informal breaks throughout their shifts to stretch get water, use the restroom or talk to a manager all without impacting their performance. And Brad, you're left thinking, reading that, hang on a second, this guy is saying people can go to the toilet and he's he's highlighting that as a plus point. What planet is he on, this guy? Well, there might be, there might, there may be a little bit of an empathy gene that you and I have and most normal people have that he maybe lacks and which has allowed him to kind of build these systems and not always consider how the human caught in the middle of it is impacted or what the unintended consequences are. 
he's very analytical, right? He looks at things surely, you know, certainly in terms of like, you know, the system and the efficiency and not always the human impact. And then when he gets criticized for it, and we see it again and again in all sorts of different ways with Amazon's business, when he gets criticized for it and when it's, the criticism starts to impact the business, then he applies his analytical mind to solving that problem. And so that's what we see now. Like, you know, the very legitimate criticism that the drivers who deliver packages for Amazon, you know, can't take a break to go to the bathroom. It sounds horrific. And and now he's addressing it. And it's it's responding to criticism. It's not solving the problem to begin with. Uh, but again, you know, in, in some in some like very capitalist way, that is maybe what has allowed him to construct this empire that now dominates our world. Some fascinating insights there from Bradstone from Taking Stock with Gavin McLaughlin. And of course, you can tune into Gavin every Sunday morning from 10 to 11. Okay, I'm going to leave you with now Sean Moncrief and professional farter Emma Martin. Yes, you heard that correctly. Have a great weekend. And when you get requests, apart from the, you know, the, the theme around it, are, do they want a specific sort of fart? Uh, I don't no, not really. Um, Just, I haven't really had, I mean, some people say bubbly or whatever, but you can't really control what comes out of well, yeah. <laughs> you know, so they kind of get what they get. And I, I haven't really, I haven't heard too much disappointment. So I guess I'm doing okay with right, okay, all right. <laughs> what comes out. And, and, and it, like, is this a fetish for people? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I didn't know it was a fetish until... 2005 I was like you gotta be kidding me I never heard of it and I had heard of a lot since I had been camming for years since then and now nothing surprises me like honestly you know nothing at all surprises me as far as fetishes go and everything like that is it just is it just men who like it or are there women too I I think that 99% of it is men I have you know, you can never tell who's on the other end requesting something, but, mm. and there might be a guy pretending to be a girl every once in a while, but I'd say it's, it's mostly men. Yeah. And, um, I, I, and is it a sexual, or is it connected to a sexual fetish, Emma, or is it just the fart in itself? That's, that's really the main event for them. Um, I, uh, I think that, um, like at some point in, from what I found out at some point in, their life, uh, a woman, someone that they think is very sexy, farted in front of them, and that's where the connection came in, and uh. it's very sexual for them. So, I, I mean, there's most of my videos, there's, to me, nothing sexual about it, but my farts to them is sexual, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah, no, that, ma- that makes total sense. So, in, in, in a typical week, Emma, how many farts do you have to produce? <laughs> well... Um, I have my OnlyFans page and I update it three times a day. So that's 21 videos a day for that. And then I take customs too. So I try, I only film when my house is empty, when everybody's at school and work and everything like that. So I have to make the most of my time. Sure. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and, and I assume that, 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 you know, to get yourself match, match fit, so to speak, that, that you have to be careful about your diet and, and, you know, what will produce the desired effect. Absolutely. Yeah. I usually get started early in the day and before bed, I'll have like a couple fiber bars or I'll have um, like beans and coleslaw or avocados or um, Mexican for dinner. And then I kind of keep it going through the day and 
it happens. <laughs> right. Okay. And do you have to time that carefully because you don't want to start misfiring before the camera rolls, so to speak? Oh, exactly. Yeah. And and the thing about it is that everyone thinks, oh, you just fart and then you put it up there. And this is not brain surgery. I'm not the smartest person in the world, but you do have to spend a lot of time editing because I could film for five minutes and I might only get a minute out of it, you know? So mm. I just constantly keep it rolling and, you know, I'm not going to sell a five minute video when there's only a minute worth of interesting stuff in it. So it's a lot of that too. Uh, and say, so, yeah. In the, and the ones you said that like, there's a, some sort of scenario, you know, like if you're driving in your car, uh, presumably mm -hmm. then you must have learned how to hold them in uh, uh, oh, yeah. until the moment you want to let <laughs> it out. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. And when they come out and I'm not ready for it, I get a little disappointed because I didn't get to film it. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. In case you missed it with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk.